In today's reading from the book of Isaiah, the prophet declares of himself, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The image of an anointed prophet might be something we take for granted, but it probably started, startled those who heard his message originally. In the Hebrew tradition, prophets weren't anointed. That privilege belonged to kings and priests, those who had been set apart by God with a clear divine mandate. Prophets, on the other hand, were usually those who came to God's people and brought their words from outside the established religious and political hierarchies. Now, the prophet Elisha, we note, is a rare exception. He was, in fact, anointed by Elijah literally to pick up the mantle in order to confront those kings and priests who had lost their way. But in Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, we see this prophet claiming for himself that authority and doing so This prophet defines his ministry and the message he brings as one that God himself had both authorized and enabled. You might have seen the Netflix series, The Crown. Elizabeth and I have only just begun it a couple of weeks ago. And you might remember in the first season at Queen Elizabeth's coronation how the Archbishop of Canterbury stumbles over his words as he anoints the new queen with the holy chrism. You might remember that that act takes place under a golden canopy. And when the story of the crown cuts away and lets us see another character who is watching this event unfold on television, that character asks why the camera doesn't capture that moment, why the audience isn't allowed to see it. And the answer he receives is that for those watching on television, that event is not to be seen because they are mere mortals. But for the anointed monarch, the one upon whom a manifestation of God's authority is being imprinted, the distinction between divine and human begins to blur. Similarly, when this prophet announces that God has placed God's spirit upon him through his own holy anointing, this prophet is asking us to hear what he says to us as if it were God speaking to us, as if it were God who had come down to accomplish this thing that the prophet envisions. Why anointed? Why must he be anointed for this work? Why must he be set apart consecrated, made holy to do this thing because as the prophecy itself reveals to us, the vision that he offers is God's own vision for the world. It's God's vision for what the world will one day be like when all the princes and priests and presidents and prelates of the earth are enfolded into the complete and total reign of God. And what is that vision? That vision, the prophet announces, is good news for the oppressed. And it is the means by which 
the brokenhearted will be bound up. What a curious phrase. How do you bind up the wounds of a broken heart? Where do you find a bandage or a poultice for that? The prophet seems to be signaling to us with these words that the good news he brings is not only emotional or spiritual consolation for those who have suffered, but somehow a physical and tangible healing for God's people's invisible wounds. Liberty for the captives, he proclaims. Release for the prisoners. Those words to us probably sound like a hopeful metaphor because we've never had to experience exile from our homelands. And most of us don't know what it means to be imprisoned by our debts. But what about those who have been forced to live in cages? What about those who have felt the powerlessness of having to choose between food on the table or medicine in the cupboard? Isn't the prophet's message for them about freedom and release something more than an image of hope? Doesn't it become the promise of real transformation? Over and over in this prophecy, we hear that the prophet has been anointed by God to comfort those who mourn by providing for them, by allowing them to exchange their ashes and tears of grief and loss for the garland of the garland and oil of comfort and ease. The people's ransacked and destroyed cities will be rebuilt. Their devastated homes will be restored. The people will be given their recompense, literally their true wages, their proper value, which had been taken away from them. Given the extent of the economic imagery that the prophet uses, it seems likely that the binding up of those broken hearts that God had in mind included a recalibration of the financial systems that had imprisoned the poor and that had pressed the vulnerable to the edge of society, if not beyond it. The prophet was probably envisioning the kind of economic transformation that is recorded for us in the book of Leviticus, when God sets out the concept of jubilee. And you shall hallow the 50th year, God declared, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And you shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. In that year of Jubilee, all debts were to be canceled. Everyone who had been forced to sell themselves into indentured servitude was to be released from their obligation. All the ancestral land that had been mortgaged or sold by those who needed the money to pay their bills, it was to be returned to its original family. The liberty that this prophet in Isaiah had been anointed to proclaim, the freedom that God was bringing to God's people was a world in which no one was crushed under the weight of economic injustice, a world in which no one was held prisoner by the bonds of poverty. I, the Lord, love justice, the prophet declares on God's behalf. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. 
God's vision for the world, God's plan for how we live our lives here and now is one of universal prosperity and abundance. But if God's people were able to pursue that vision on their own, if they were able to come together and make the words of Leviticus 25 a reality in their lives, well, we wouldn't need prophets to come and speak on God's behalf and call us to account and show us that divine vision which we have chosen to forget. What is the prophet inviting us to see? Imagine what would happen to our world and our economy if everyone's debts were wiped away once a generation. Imagine what would happen to you and your family if the land on which your home is built was given back to its original inhabitants. Imagine what would happen to this parish if the generational wealth on which our lives depend was reset and redistributed, not according to the value that its inherited owners have assigned it, but according to the intrinsic value of every human being that the people of St. Paul's come into contact with. Imagine that we can't. I dare say that we cannot on our own Imagine a world like that, but God can. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, God's anointed one can. And that anointed one comes to make such a world a reality, not only at the end of time, a final last gasp effort at egalitarianism, but to make that reality true here and now. It starts within our imaginations, and then unfolds throughout our lives. But how will we ever see it? How will we ever pursue it? How will we get past our own limitations and make such a dream the reality we inherit? We can start with the example of John the Baptist and remember that we are not the Messiah, but are called to seek the one who is. We are not God's anointed one. We are not the Christ. We are not the one responsible for making God's kingdom come. But as followers of Jesus, we are united to the one who does. And we are empowered by the spirit that he has sent us. When we belong to Christ, that Holy Spirit in turn anoints us and propels us into God's vision for our lives and for our world. That spirit calls us to repent of the wrongs we have done and left undone, and it forms us for the holy life into which God calls us. With the spirit's help and inspiration, we can follow Jesus into that vision, not only in theory or in metaphor, but in ways that impact the decisions we make the policies we support, and the priorities that we fund. Like John the baptizer, we look for the anointed one who stands among us, the thong of whose sandals we are not worthy to stoop down and untie. That is where we must start. 
at the feet of the anointed one whom God has sent to bring good news to the oppressed and to bind up the brokenhearted. If you yearn for that vision with all of your heart but find it just beyond your grasp, then give yourself back to the one who empowers us to pursue it. He will lead us there. And if you're not quite ready to wrap your whole heart and mind around that vision of what the world will be like, then give yourself back to the one who empowers us to imagine it. He will teach you how to see God's vision for your life. God's great intention for the world is unfolding all around us. And those who follow Jesus follow him into that vision. 